I'll let you take some time and look at the rest of the bulletin, and then I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? We'd be glad to give you one. In fact, we'd love you to keep that Bible if you'd like. Just want you to bring it back next time so we don't have to give you two. But that's your Bible if you'd like it. Uh, If not, just leave it here and we'll pick it back up. So keep your hand raised nice and high so the guys can see you, and we'd be glad to give you Uh, that Bible. We're looking at uh, the book of Ruth. I don't know the page. Uh, I didn't have time to check that out. Um, But um, it's in the Old Testament right after the book of Judges and uh, more towards the beginning. Uh, Let me just kind of review where we've been. This is our third week in this series on Ruth. Uh, Week one, we looked at uh, this idea of God's providence in suffering. And it's a very difficult time in the nation of Israel. This book is written about Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz who lived during the time of the judges. And we know that the time of the judges was a time of of great evil within the nation. In fact, the, the book ends by saying everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They weren't interested in what God was saying. They were doing what they thought was right and just going ahead with whatever it was that they were doing. Well, not only was this a difficult time in the history of the nation of Israel, we find that it's a very difficult time in this family that we're studying. Elimelech Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, leave the nation of Israel during a famine to go to Moab. Now, we don't know the circumstances behind why they left, but we do know that the place that they were supposed to be was the nation of Israel, that they were supposed to stay unless God told them to go. And since most others didn't go, we must assume that this was a decision that they made. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, and they left and they went to Moab. While they're there... Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, dies. Then Naomi's two sons marry two Moabite women. And then Naomi's two sons die. Very difficult, very painful time for Naomi. Well, Naomi, after her sons die and her husband dies, and she's there in Moab, hears that there is food again in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, and she hears that the house of bread is beginning to fill up again. So she says, I have nothing here in Moab. Let's go to, back to Israel. And her two daughter-in-law say, hey, we're going with you. We have nothing here either. And they start to go, and, and Naomi says, no, it's probably a better idea. Why don't you stay? And they say, no, 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 we're going. They go along for a little while longer, and Naomi once again says, I really think you should stay. And Orpah, one of her daughter-in-law, says, you know what? I think you're right. I'm going to stay. They cry, and they hug, and they leave. And Naomi tries to convince Ruth to go back. And if you uh, have your Bibles open to Ruth, look at chapter 1, verse 15. Naomi tries to convince Ruth now to go back with Orpah. And she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back to that god, Chemosh, who requires children sacrifice. It's a pagan deity. It was a, a very dark society and she's saying to her daughter-in-laws you guys you go back there that's you'll be better off there and Ruth makes the powerful statement and says no where you go I go where you live I live your God is my God I'm going with you it's a beautiful picture of repentance it's a picture of Ruth turning her back on that dark society on that evil deity on those idols and saying no I'm going to follow the one true God in our very first week we looked at a verse 1 Peter 4.19, where Peter says, Those who suffer according to God's will, entrust yourself to a faithful creator and continue to do what is right. And that's exactly what Ruth does. Rather than trusting the things of Moab, she says, I'm going with you, Naomi. We're widows, we're childless, we have nothing, but we have the one true God. I am turning from that, and I am turning towards that one true God. And Naomi says... Okay, come on. So she finally gets back to Bethlehem, and all of the people of the city see her and say, Hey, Naomi, you're back. You're back. Wow, that's really great. And she says, You know what? Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. And she says, I want you to call me Mara. That's the Hebrew word for bitter. She says, Because God 
has dealt bitterly with me. God has taken away everything that I have. God has done these terrible things to me. God obviously doesn't care about me. But we saw in that first week in God's providence in our suffering that God does care. We looked at Exodus chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 when the nation of Israel cried out to God in slavery in Egypt, groaning because of the hardship that they experienced. And God saw their distress. God heard their cries. God remembered his promises to them. And God cared about what they were experiencing. Our God is not a distant God who doesn't care, who just set things in motion and allowed things to go. God is concerned about the lives of his people in the midst of their suffering. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he remembers his promises. So, we have Bethlehem is full And we have Naomi, who's empty. But yet we get to chapter 2, and we're introduced to a man named Boaz. A very worthy, very honorable man. And Ruth volunteers, because they're widows, they have nothing, they have no way to support themselves. Ruth says, I'm going to go glean in the fields. Which basically means, I'm going to go into the fields during harvest time, and I'm going to pick up the stuff that got left in the ground. God required that the harvesters would not pick up the things that, were, that had fallen during the harvest so that the poor would be able to feed themselves. And Naomi says, I'm going to go and glean. Now take a look at chapter 2, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. It just so happened that she showed up in Boaz's land. But we know that that's God's providence. We know that God is directing Ruth into this place, into this relative of hers, who is a generous, godly, caring man. And Boaz begins to take care of Ruth. He notices her. He notices her hard work and takes care of her in a, in a very generous way. Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, wow, I met this guy, Boaz, he's really taking care of me. And now we begin in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 20, to see that, that Naomi's beginning to come around as well. It says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whoa, maybe God hasn't quite forsaken me. Maybe God is still there. Maybe God is working in the midst of our suffering. See, I think Naomi's starting to come around. Now we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible of a relationship between a man and a woman. But it starts off a little shaky. Um, Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? See, Naomi is definitely concerned for Ruth. She wants her to experience rest. The Hebrew word literally means security. Now, we know exactly what Naomi is talking about because it's the exact same word she used for Orpah and Ruth back in chapter 1, verse 9. In chapter 1, verse 9, she said, May the Lord enable each of you to find rest in the home of a new husband. So what Naomi is saying to Ruth is, we got to find you a man we got to find you a husband because you need rest, you need security. She truly cares about Ruth. And then she comes up with a plan. Let's take a look at that plan beginning in verse 2. It's not Boaz, our relative, with whose young woman you were. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor But don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. So... This is probably a couple of weeks after the end of chapter 2. Take some time when the harvest is finished, which happened in chapter 2, until all of the threshing is done. There's a lot of work that goes on at night. They actually take the barley, they throw it up in the air during the breezes, and and the barley is heavier than the chaff, and it flows away, and there's a whole process, and they're going through that. And we know from other places in Scripture that when that winnowing is done, when the threshing is all done, it's a time for a great celebration. There's a big party that going to occur, and Naomi knows that that party is tonight. 
And she says to Ruth, okay, here's what you do. Go take a bath. Get all cleaned up. I want you to put on some nice perfume. Put on a dress. And I want you to go and uh, go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be. And right at the right moment, and that moment is after he has eaten and uh, had enough wine to be cheerful. Um, And when he's all settled down in bed, um, then you're going to slip the blanket off his feet and kind of pull in next to him. And then I want you to wait and see what Boaz does and what he asks you to do. And verse 7 says, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So she does exactly what Naomi asks her to do. Now, there is a great deal of disagreement among Bible... I shouldn't say that. Most Bible scholars believe that Naomi is putting together really a a righteous plan um, of action. And um, uh, she's, she's trying to get Ruth because she really cares about her and she's such a caring, wonderful woman. She wants Ruth to get this protection. Uh, even uh, John Piper, I read, was reading him yesterday afternoon, and he, he feels that way. And these guys are a lot smarter than me, but I disagree with them. Um, I, I really think that it's pretty clear that the text is saying what the text is saying. In fact, when you read the Hebrew, there are three words there that's used in the instructions by Naomi that can be used of, in a sexual nature. Um, now, they can be used not in a sexual nature, but they also, in some of them, most of the time, they are used that way. Well, if you take the text for what's happening, get cleaned up, put on some perfume, let the guy have a few drinks, and then slide in next to him... You see, some commentators, some commentators will say that all that Naomi is asking Ruth to do is to demonstrate to Boaz that she's no longer in mourning. By, by changing her clothes, she's taking off her mourning clothes, not early in the day, but mourning because of the death of her husband. She's taking those clothes off and putting on clothes that demonstrates to Boaz she's now eligible to be married. I don't buy that. For two reasons. One is, if you go back to chapter 1, Naomi tells Ruth to go back and find a husband in Moab, which means that her mourning period must have already been over, or she wouldn't have told her to go find a husband. Secondly, it's the middle of the night. It's dark, okay? There's no electric lights. He can't see what she's wearing. He doesn't know if she's got mourning clothes or not mourning clothes. So that's not what she's trying to do. Um, I think she's clearly hoping that Boaz will see Ruth and decide to sleep with her because in Exodus chapter 22, verse 16, it says that if a a man sleeps with a woman, he is required to pay the bride price for that woman. In other words, he's, he's required to marry her. Naomi's desire for Ruth is to find a husband. She's got the best way to do it, get all cleaned up, get dressed, go over to his house, let him have a few drinks, and... Hopefully he'll sleep with you, and then you'll have a husband. Um, Again, like I said, most of the commentators don't agree with me, but I'm going to tell you why I think I'm right. (laughs) Because I see see five things wrong with Naomi's plan. And I think for us, as we look at those things, I want us to think about our own planning. And when we are making plans to try to accomplish a good thing, because what Naomi is trying to accomplish is a good thing for Ruth. She needs a husband. She's vulnerable as a, as a, a widow and a single woman, a foreigner in, a, in, in Israel. So, but here's five things that we need to think about when we make plans and we need to be careful of. First of all, Naomi proposes to, sol- to solve the problem in secret. She hopes to get it done in the dark of night when no one can see. Look, if you are making plans and you want to make sure no one sees what you're doing, you better stop and step back and think about those plans. If you don't want anyone to see, if you're not willing to allow your plans to be open to scrutiny, if you want it done in the darkness, then that's probably a problem with that plan. Take a look at Ephesians. Keep your finger there in Ruth and go over to the right to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. 
chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians 5, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. See, Paul is saying, don't get involved with things that have to be done in the darkness when no one can see. We need to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. We need to let things be visible. We need to let things be open. And Naomi is looking for a a way to accomplish her plan in the darkness of night. That's a problem. Secondly, there is absolutely no mention of God in any of Naomi's plans. Which is not really shocking when you think that originally her first plan for Ruth was to go marry a Moabite guy and go worship this god Chemosh. Okay? So there's absolutely no mention of, of God and not any opportunity to leave room for God to work in her plan. It's detailed out, boom, 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 boom. You got to do these things. We need to know that when we make plans, we need to, at the very beginning, get God involved. We first need to look at his word to see, is there anything that we're thinking that would violate a principle or a, a doctrine within the word of God? Secondly, we need to pray. We need to ask God for, for wisdom. We need to ask God to guide us. Thirdly, we need to get godly counsel. We need to ask other Christians. We need to get God involved in our plans right at the beginning. What happens so often in our lives is we make these plans, we, we get out that yellow pad, right, and we put the line down the middle, and we put all the good stuff on that side and all the bad stuff on that side, and we weigh it out, and then we think, oh, wait a minute, um, we didn't pray about this. God, will you sprinkle a little of that Holy Spirit dust on this plan of mine? Because I want it to work. I want you to be involved. No, Nomi doesn't even go that far. Okay, she doesn't get God involved at all. When we make plans, we need to make sure that God is involved from the beginning. Thirdly, Naomi's plan seems to deliberately bypass and exclude the nearest of kin, giving preference to Boaz instead. You see, Naomi knew that there was another relative that was closer to the family than Boaz was. We know that from from chapter 2, verse 20. Um, She says, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. He's not the closest relative. And, And the law said that the closest relative had to be the one to redeem the family. The closest relative was the literal kinsman redeemer. And what Naomi is doing is she's circumventing the person who was responsible to go to someone that she'd prefer. See, Boaz is rich. Boaz is generous. Boaz is kind. Boaz is fair. Boaz is a good match for Ruth. The other guy, we don't know anything about at this point. We'll find out about him next week in chapter 4. But the other guy, we don't know about. And maybe he's that Mort guy that Tom was talking about last week who you don't want to be in his land. But you know what? When our plans circumvent a person or, a, or a, a process that needs to be followed in order to accomplish our purposes, we need to step back and go, I don't know if this is the right way to go. But Naomi is willing to circumvent the system in order to accomplish her purpose. Fourth, Naomi puts godly people in a place of of temptation. One of the commentators that I read um, said that, uh, yes, it it was a tempting situation that Naomi was suggesting, but she knew that Boaz was such a godly person and Ruth was such a godly person that nothing bad would happen. And in fact, what would happen was they'd do all the things that, that Naomi hoped would, would happen. I don't buy that. And here's why, okay? About, oh, I don't know, about seven years ago, uh, my daughter was away at college at, uh, in Pennsylvania. And she called me to say, hey, I met this guy. I really like him. Um, he's a godly guy, he's an athlete, he's this, he's that, and he's that. And I'm like, okay, i got to meet this guy, you know, obviously. So I flew to Pennsylvania to watch her play soccer and, and got to meet him, and I, I really liked him too. I thought, man, this is a, I'd like to have this guy as a son-in-law. This is really good. Well, this was her freshman year. <clears throat> By her senior year, nothing's happened. So I, I would decide to, uh, to fly back to Pennsylvania. He, he played basketball at, at Messiah College, where Callie was at. And um, I knew that the, the NCAA tournament was happening. 
if they won this next game, they were going to qualify for the NCAAs for the first time in years and years in school's history. So I come back, watch the game. It's going really well. I take Callie outside and say, look, here's what you need to do. I want you to go back to your room. I want you to, I want you to take a bath. All right? I want you to put some perfume on. I want you to put a nice dress on. And then, um, but I want you to wait now. Don't do anything yet. Wait till the game's over. They shower. They're going to have a party because they made the NCAA tournament. Wait till Quinn has a, you know, a couple of beers and he's, you know, cheerful. And, and then I want you to slip into his dorm room and lay down at his feet. Not. But that's exactly what Naomi did. That's exactly. She put Boaz and Ruth in a situation that was so tempting. And Jesus made it very clear when his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. He said, lead us not into temptation. And Naomi was leading these godly people into temptation. And we need to make sure when we're making plans that it doesn't place ourselves or people we care about in a place of of great temptation. And then finally, uh, the scheme needlessly puts their reputation of, of two godly people at risk. It needly, it, it's needless to place them in a, in a situation where if someone saw Ruth, they'd start talking. Wow, did you see what I saw last night? Ruth slipped into Boaz's room. Uh, create a situation where there's gossip. Create a situation where these people can be talked about in a negative way. Again, when we make plans, we need to make certain that we are not placing ourselves or people that we know or the gospel itself in a situation where it would be compromised, where people would look at what we're doing or what people we care about are doing and they would say, I didn't think Christians did that. See, we don't want to place ourselves or people we care about in a situation that could potentially compromise our reputation or the reputation of the gospel. All five of those things are part of Naomi's plan, and that's why I truly believe that it was a self-serving plan and not a godly plan. And we need to make sure when we make plans that they're not self-serving, but they follow what God has for us. So, what you see, I think, with Naomi is exactly what you see with all of the nation of Israel during the time of the judges. She's doing what's right in her eyes. She wants best for Ruth, but she's going to do it her way, what's right in her eyes. But Boaz and Ruth are committed to do what's right in God's eyes. And therefore, I believe God protects them in the midst of all of that and brings them out of that unscathed. So now we get to to verse 8, and things aren't going exactly as Naomi had planned. Verse 8 says, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman was at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You see, Naomi had expected Boaz to tell Ruth to do something. I'm not sure why, but, um, but he doesn't. He asks her who she is. And Ruth responds in the most humbly and modest way, asking Boaz to fulfill his role as a redeemer for her family. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And I believe that Ruth uh, chose her words very carefully. The word that she used here for servant is a very different word than the word that's used in chapter 2, verse 13. Just flip back over there for a second. Chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Ruth says to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. That Hebrew word there is, uh, designates the lowest possible servant, the lowest possible maid. She's the maid who cleans up after the maids. But the word she uses here in chapter 3 is a different word for servant. In fact, it's a word that means uh, the servant of the highest possible level, one that's actually eligible to marry the the owner. So what Ruth is doing here in a a very modest and very humble way is asking Boaz to to marry her. Sadie Hawkins Day, kind of. And uh, Boaz recognizes that this is a, a... 
noble and honorable response on on Ruth's part. Because when she says, I want you to be our family's redeemer, she uses the Hebrew word goel, which which, uh, means kinsman redeemer, um, the one who who protects and, and provides for the family. And she says, I want you to spread your wings over us. And it's the same blessing that Boaz gave to Ruth back in chapter 2 when he heard that Ruth had come from Moab and was sticking with and caring for her mother-in-law. She said, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, you are blessed because you've taken refuge under the wings of God. That you have trusted in the one true God. So God will bless you. And what Ruth now, by taking this back to him, is saying, You, Boaz, you can be the answer to our prayers. You can be God's provision for us. And Boaz recognizes this um, and is overwhelmed by by this request. The the Hebrews understood this idea of of wings covering over uh, the people as, as the protection and provision of God because that's the way God described himself when he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and redeemed them, he covered them over with his wings and that provided that protection and provision. So this, there's just great uh, conversation now going on between Ruth and Boaz. So take a look at verse 10. So he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, the first being taken care of, of Naomi. Um, you, have gone, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. So, Boaz recognizes, even in the midst of that really kind of shady situation, that Ruth is an honorable person. And I want us to see what he did here because I think it will help us as we try to evaluate and make decisions when we're brought into a place where uh, there's some confusing circumstances happening. How do we decide? How do we evaluate what's happening in this particular situation? Uh, Boaz gives us a great indication of how to do that. First of all, he's able to decide that Ruth is honorable uh, because... He knew of Ruth's previous experience. He knew who Ruth was based on what she had done in the past. He had already seen that she was a woman of character, that she was an honorable person, and he didn't believe that the actions that were occurring that evening would any way change that because of what he knew about her in the past. In fact, he, he calls her a, a, a worthy woman or a woman of, of excellence. Uh, it's the highest uh, co- uh, compliment that could be paid to a Hebrew woman in that day. In fact, it's the exact same word that's used in Proverbs 31.10 when it talks about um, the, the noble woman. Um, so he recognizes, because of who she was, because of how she had acted in the past, that even though the circumstances seem a little shady, because of who she was, he believed and trusted that she was there for noble purposes. In fact, he, he recognizes that, that she could have gone after a, a younger man. She could have gotten someone closer to her age to marry her, uh, but, but she doesn't. She's acting in a sacrificial way. She's concerned not only about herself, but about her mother-in-law, and even her deceased husband, because by calling Boaz that kinsman redeemer, she's saying, I want you to perpetuate my husband's line. Not only are you going to take care of Naomi and myself and provide us with land and food, but by, by marrying me and having a child, you'll perpetuate my husband's line. So she's not only looking out for herself, but she is... Um, caring for the people around her, and that's consistent with who she is and how she's acted in the past. So when we're evaluating a situation and someone comes to us with a proposal, and we can look at that and go, gee, I'm not sure, this seems a little shaky to me, we need to think about that person. What do we know about them? How have they behaved and how have they acted in the past? And that will help us, I believe, make a good decision as to whether or not we go along with that plan. Secondly, I think Boaz responds 
His response is a reflection of his own personal purity. Boaz was a godly man, and he looked at things in a godly way. Look at, uh, keep your finger again there in Ruth, and go all the way over to the book of Titus, towards the end of the uh, New Testament, past Ephesians, and 1 Thessalonians, and there goes my piece of paper. Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You see, when our hearts are right before God, because the Bible tells us very clearly what defiles a man is what comes out of us, what comes from our heart. So when our hearts are right, when we've confessed sin, when we have confessed sin, the Bible says that not only does God forgive us, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So when we are cleansed from unrighteousness because of confessed sin, when we look at things, we look at them in a pure way. Now, if our minds are dealing with sin, if we're sitting at the computer looking at pornography most of the day, when somebody presents something that could be a little shaky, of course we're going to think of it in a bad way because we're embroiled in sin. But the Bible says... When our hearts are pure, we're going to evaluate things in a pure way. So not only was Boaz wise in understanding the kind of woman that Ruth was, he also understood his own need for cleansing and purity. And that doesn't make us gullible just because we're pure and we think pure things because he also evaluated the situation based on her history. It wasn't just, okay, I'm just going to be pure and whatever she says is fine. But no, he took the combination of that and his pure heart, and he saw things in in the right way. Thirdly, Boaz was a humble man, and that humility helped him to see things the right way. There is a close connection between humility and wisdom. Arrogance clouds our ability to see things clearly, while humility lets us see things as they are. See, because humility really is just seeing things as they are. Humility is not, oh, I'm such a poor, no good person. No, humility is seeing God, the creator king of the universe, the magnificent Lord of Lords, as who he really is. Holy, holy, holy. The great God and Savior, seeing him for who he is, and then seeing ourselves for who we are in comparison to him. We're needy, dependent people who are in desperate need of a relationship with that king. And when we see ourselves in that way, humbly understanding who we are, we're not so worried about this plan that comes to us. Well, how is that going to affect me? Or am I going to be taken care of in this situation? That what we're more interested in is the thing is done right because we see things the way they should be. So, when we look at things, we need to make sure that we understand who we are in in God's eyes. And then we can see things clearly. And then finally, I uh, I think Boaz believed the best about Ruth because that's what love does. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love believes the best. Boaz was, I believe, in love with Ruth, and therefore he believed the best about her. And, and that's what we need to do as husband and wife. I can't tell you how many times I sit in meetings with couples and they explain a particular situation that happened, and it, it could be interpreted in a painful way, but if they would only give each other the benefit of the doubt that, look, most guys are dumb when it comes to relationships. We do dumb things. We don't mean to hurt you. Just give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love believes the best. And because of that, because he saw her in that way, Boaz was able to make a good decision and evaluate in a very quick, very difficult circumstance the situation in a proper way and make a good decision. And if we want to do the same, we need to be people who look at the existing situation based on the past. We need to be pure in our own thoughts. We need to be humble And we need to demonstrate love. And those are all the things that Boaz did. But as much as Boaz wants to do exactly what Ruth wants him to do, there's a problem. Look at verse 12, back to chapter 3. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now just go ahead and lie down. See, Boaz wanted to do everything he could for Ruth. But he would only do it as God's law described. He would not circumvent the system. He would not go outside of the custom and the law that God had provided, which was that the nearest relative had first shot. And as much as he loved Ruth, as much as he wanted to do for her everything that he could do, he was not willing to go outside of the law of God and take things into his own hands. Boaz was so committed to doing what was right, he was willing to sacrifice the love and the possibility of a future with Ruth To do the right thing. So he tells Ruth to just chill out until morning. And and he doesn't want her certainly to leave at this time of the night. It would be very dangerous for her to go from the threshing floor back to her house at, at this late time of night. And secondly, if someone was to see her, again, they would assume that something wrong had happened. So not only is Boaz protecting her physically, he's protecting her reputation, and he's caring for her, and he says, just go ahead and sleep, and I'll get you before dawn. So before dawn, he wakes her up, and he says, okay, it's safe for you to go back, but I don't want you to go back empty-handed. I want you to have some food to take back to Naomi. So he does, he loads her up with some food, he's not really sure how much it is, but it's as much as she can carry, and she goes back to Naomi. Naomi says, who are you? That's the literal Hebrew response of Naomi, says, who are you? you?" Which again, to me, is an indication, is she's saying, are you Boaz's wife? Uh, And she just says, no, I'm here with some grain, and um, we're going to have to wait because there's a redeemer closer. So... Naomi says, okay, let's just wait and see what he does. So the story ends. Um, I can't wait to see what happens next week. But in the midst of this, I think there are some, some so what's for us. There are some applications that we can take out of this story that I think will help us as we evaluate the situations of life that we face. And first is that, that godly character is revealed in the midst of difficult and tempting situations. This was a really tough deal for Boaz. Um, I can't imagine what his thinking was and when he realized that this was Ruth. It was the middle of the night. She was smelling very good and there was an opportunity for him. But his character said no. Not only is that wrong in the relational aspect, but it was outside of what God would have him do because there was a kinsman nearer to her than him. So in the midst of that tempting and difficult and challenging situation, Boaz's character rose to the forefront. And you know what happens to us sometimes in the midst of difficult and tempting situations that we live in every day? Every day we face temptation. What's on the TV screen and what's in the movies and what we see walking in the mall. All of those temptations that come against us, the computer screens, we, we complain. We complain. We say, oh God, it's so tough. This is so hard. This is so hard living in this world today in the 21st century. You don't understand how hard it is. But you know what? Those hard situations, those tempting situations, those difficult times are when the light of the gospel shines most brightly. It is those opportunities when we make a stand for what is right, when we make a stand for righteousness in the middle of this tempting and perverse generation that the gospel is proclaimed and God is glorified. We don't need to complain about this, the times that we live in. We need to make a difference in the times that we live in by standing for righteousness and standing for God exactly as Boaz and Ruth did in that particular situation. Secondly, secondly, men, men, we are called by God to be moral leaders in our relationships with the opposite sex. You see, in our culture, most of the time, the man is the aggressor, right? We're the ones who are kind of pushing things as far as we can until the woman is willing to say, okay, 
that's, that's far enough. And then typically we even go further than that. We go, oh, gee, if you really love me, you know, we would go even farther than this. But see, that's not what Boaz did. Boaz took the moral high ground in this situation. Naomi told Ruth to do whatever Boaz asked her to do. And had Boaz not been a man of character, things would have gone very differently in the middle of the night and under the cover of darkness. But Boaz took the moral leadership and he was willing to protect the purity and the reputation of Ruth. Guys, we should expect nothing less from ourselves. We should expect nothing less than to take the moral high ground in every situation when it comes to dealing with a woman. That is the standard. We need to be the kind of moral leader who protects the purity and the reputation of the women in our life. That's what real manhood is about. And that's who Boaz was. He was a powerful, important man. He could have had anything he wanted that night. But instead, he chose to protect her and care for her. I think lastly, I want us to see that methods matter. How we do things matter as much as the result that we're hoping to get. In other words, the end doesn't justify the means. Remember what I said. Naomi really cared about Ruth. She wanted her to find rest and security. She wanted a good thing for her. She wanted her to have a husband. But the way she went about it was wrong. It was a shortcut. It was doing things in a way that seems to get the job done, but falls short of what God requires. And that's what a shortcut is in this particular situation, is doing things in a way that seems to get the job done, but falls short of what God requires. So I wanted to find some examples in Scripture, you know, to kind of drive home that point. Um, What was very interesting is there were lots and lots of examples of people in Scripture taking the shortcut, of of doing things in, in such a way that they got the job done, but it wasn't what God required. And there were very few examples of those who didn't do that. Which tells me that for us, that's kind of how we operate, right? If these people in Scripture, if that's what they did, that's probably how we live as well. We probably look for shortcuts. We probably look for ways to get things done. Just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve wanted a good thing. They wanted to be like God. That's a good thing. We all should want to be like God. But they took a shortcut. They tried to do it by eating fruit that God had forbidden. See, they were trying to accomplish something that was good, but they were doing it in a way that fell short of what God requires. You have, you have Abraham and Sarah. God says, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to be the child of promise, and it's through him that the line of the Messiah will come. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they get tired of waiting, and finally Sarah says to Abraham, look, we can't wait any longer. We want this child. It's what God wants. So you go sleep with Hagar, and if she gets pregnant, we'll call her my child. Abraham goes, hmm, okay. <laughs> and they do, and the child is born, and we're still paying the price of that today. See, they, they tried to do something in such a way that was outside of what God requires. And it, they did, that family didn't really learn their lesson. You have Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. God says that Jacob is going to receive the blessing. Rebekah knows it, Jacob knows it, Isaac knows it. But Isaac wants to give the blessing to Esau because he likes Esau better. Rebekah gets nervous because she knows that what Isaac wants to do, so she dresses Jacob up like Esau. She makes him all hairy and smelly, so, she th- so Isaac thinks that it's Esau, and they steal the blessing that God was going to give him anyway. What did they do? They took things into their own hands. They did things in a way that got the job done, but it fell short of what God required of them. There are example after example in Scripture. I, I, I think of, of King Saul, who uh, Samuel told him, you don't do the sacrifice, okay? I'm going to come back and do the sacrifice. You just wait. 
And Saul waited and waited and waited, and his soldiers started abandoning him. The Philistines are sitting out there, and his soldiers are leaving. So Saul says, nah, I can't wait. I'll take a shortcut. I'll do the sacrifice. And of course, as a result of that, God says, you're not going to receive the, the blessing of continuing the, king, uh, the kingdom in your name. It's going to go, go, and go to David's. And again, I, I could give you more examples. And like I said, it was very hard to find <clears throat> examples of, of people in Scripture who didn't try to take shortcuts. I found one where David, King David, um, and it's only as a result of him doing the wrong thing, he takes a census of the people even though God told him not to. So as a result of that, God brings pestilence upon the entire nation of Israel. And people are dying like crazy. And David doesn't know what to do. So this prophet named Gad comes to David and says, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to go and purchase uh, the threshing floor of Arona and go to that floor and make a sacrifice before God. And he'll stop the pestilence. So David goes right to the the threshing floor of Verona and says to him, Hey, I want to buy your uh, threshing floor so I can make the sacrifice. And Verona says, Oh, Mr. King, you don't have to buy it. You can have it. And David says, No, no, I'm not going to take that shortcut. I'm going to pay full price for this because I am not going to make a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. See, David won't take a shortcut. By the way, that's one of the only the few times in history that a, that a, a Jew paid the full price for anything. But, <laughs> but he was unwilling to take, take a shortcut. The only other example that I could think about, really, in Scripture was the, uh, these righteous pagans who were on the ship with, with Jonah. Right? Jonah identifies himself as the problem. They are in the worst storm. These are experienced sailors. They are in the worst storm they've ever seen in their life. And... Jonah says, I'm the problem. You've got to throw me in the sea. And they say, oh man, we're not going to do that. They, they throw their cargo. This is their, their living, their livelihood. They throw it into the sea. They try everything they possibly can to, to save Jonah until they finally can't do anything more and they throw him into the sea. They weren't willing to, to take a shortcut. The ultimate example, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. After he started his public ministry... The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness uh, to fast and to be tempted by Satan. And what did Satan tempt him to do? Satan tempted him to uh, take a shortcut, right? Satan tempted him to act independently of the Father. Satan tempted him to worship Satan. He said, I'll, I'll give you all of, all of these kingdoms. All you have to do is bow down to me. All you have to do is, is take a shortcut and don't go to the cross. See, Satan didn't want him to go to the cross because at the cross, the crushing blow against sin and death w- would happen. And Satan tried to convince Jesus three times to go in a different direction. But because our Lord Jesus Christ refused to take a shortcut, he refused to take the easy way. And he took the pain and the suffering and the humiliation of the cross at Calvary so that he could pay the price for the sins of his people. We are the beneficiaries of that truth that Jesus was unwilling to accept a shortcut. And because he refused to take a shortcut, there is no way that God will accept any shortcut to salvation that we might choose to avoid the cross. See, the gospel is very clear. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. No one comes to salvation but by the cross of Calvary. Not our best efforts, not our most wonderful works, nothing can please God. Nothing is sufficient payment for our sins. Only Christ's death on our behalf paid the price for our sins. And only his righteousness given to us as a gift can meet God's standards. There are no shortcuts when it comes to salvation.
There are no shortcuts when it comes to our eternal destiny. It is only the gospel that can save us. You see, when we try to take shortcuts in life, ultimately what we do is we deprive ourselves of the opportunity of seeing God work in our lives. When we try to manipulate, when we try to do things to get done what we want to get done outside of the will of God, we eliminate God's movement and our ability to see him work in powerful ways in our own lives. See, we, we look for shortcuts because we, think, we see things as, as too difficult. We perceive that there's no way around this particular situation. But it's God himself who raises the level of difficulty so that he can demonstrate his power and his grace in our lives. And if we try to take shortcuts, we miss that. We miss seeing him work. We miss the opportunity to recognize the providence of God in our lives and to give him the glory and the praise for it. When we make a decision to take a shortcut, we lose the opportunity to see how God will work in our lives and lead us through that dark valley that we happen to be in. So whatever place you're in now, whatever challenges that you're facing, and as we started today praying for each one of us who are facing all kinds of challenges, please remember that methods matter. That how you deal with the situation, the plan that you make, the way that you evaluate your opportunities makes a difference. Do what's right. It's never right to do the wrong thing, even if our desire is good. And that's where Naomi was. Her desire was good, but she went about it the wrong way. Trust God. Allow him to work and watch him magnify himself and give us the desires of our heart. We're going to have an opportunity now to respond to the great gift of salvation that he has brought us through the celebration of communion. Matt's going to come out here and he's going to be over at the conference center at the end of the service and we're going to have an opportunity to respond to this great gift. The fact that Jesus never did take a shortcut. We're going to respond to that in, in celebration and worship. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. That he was willing to accept the pain, the suffering, the humiliation so that we might have his righteousness. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we evaluate the situations of life, as we evaluate the plans and proposals and uh, and the direction that we take, that we would remember that what we do and how we do it matters. Let us do things that would glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.